Check, check. Nothing? Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the second event in uh, the new writing series this quarter. Uh, thanks to the Dean's Office of Art and Humanities for their support of our series. Uh, thanks to the two writers that are here and thanks to the two introducers that uh, have um, uh, happily volunteered to introduce our, our wonderful guests today. Um, I'll just remind you real quickly that uh, Cell phones can really detract from a public event, so uh, if you could turn them, the ringers off, that would be great. Um, and uh, w w we have two readers today, uh, and we have two introducers, so what we're going to do is we're going to have Amelia Glazer introduce, introduce Maria, and we're going to have Keith McCleary introduce... introduce Everybody else. So, um, so Adrian. And so our. Um, so when Masha's done, you'll take the stage. Okay. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, this is going to be great reading. Right. Well, it's it's a particular pleasure to get to introduce Maria Rybakova who uh, was born in Moscow, uh, in the Soviet Union, um, as one of the bright new voices experimenting with form in Russian, Maria has garnered a great deal of critical attention among Russian literary critics in Russia, as well as in far-flung provinces like, uh, like the U.S. Um, and I, I was, in fact, lucky enough to get to be present at a panel a year ago at the, um, the annual Slavic literature convention that was devoted entirely to, uh, to Maria's work. She's the author of six books in, in Russian, an astonishing number for a person under the age of 40. Uh, she has seen her work translated into several languages. These books include um, Anna Grom and Her Ghost, which came out in 1999, A Mystery, Stories, and a Novel, The Loser's Brotherhood, Blind Speech, Sharp Knife for a Soft Heart, I just brought a couple with me, 
and uh, most recently Gniedzic, which came out in, in Moscow in 2011. And this most recent book, Gniedzic, is a novel in verse. It's composed in 12 cantos. Gniedzic is a deeply lyrical text that, that nonetheless offers a tightly structured narrative about the life of the eponymous hero, the 19th century translator of the Iliad into Russian, a man whose, whose physical scars, he was in fact partially blinded by his pockmarks, led to emotional scars. And there's, there's something, I think, also tragic about writing about a translator, especially a translator of, of Homer and all of the inadequacies that that project naturally entails. And Maria's varied syllabic verse offers a kind of, I don't know, a kind of background music to, to the narrative that makes it at once personal and historical um, and that, that unfolds throughout these contos. I should mention briefly Maria's numerous awards. She's won numerous awards, and I'll only mention a few of them. This, these include multiple nominations for the Russian Booker Prize. Uh, the recognition for Gniedic alone has fallen into the categories of both prose and uh, poetry. It received the Antologia Prize in Poetry, second prize in the prestigious Ruskaya Premia for Prose. It was a finalist for the NOS Prize for New Fiction, which is awarded by the Prokhorov Foundation. It was a finalist for the Andrei Bieli Prize in Prose and was included in the Moskovsky Shot um, as one of the 10 best books of poetry in 2012 to come out in Russian. So as these prizes suggest, her work reveals a blurry border between poetry and prose. Andrew Kahn, writing for the Times Literary Supplement, writes that Rybakova has a superb ear for seamlessly layering different registers, such as the vernacular of Pushkin's generation and the archaic of high-style epic. Uh, Vladimir Gubailovsky, uh, in writing for Druzhba Narodov, lauds Maria for finding a way to write an engaging historical novel even in, in uh, the 21st century. Well, Maria Rybakova is, is a reader's writer, I would say, and her inheritance from the writers of the past, from Pushkin to Borges, is there for the discerning interlocutor to notice. Her, her far historical horizon can be attributed, I think at least in part, to her deep knowledge of the classics. In addition to her literary output, Maria received a PhD in classics from Yale University. She wrote a dissertation on the child-snatching demons of antiquity, and she is currently an assistant professor of classics at San Diego State University. I'll let the rest speak for itself. Please welcome Maria Rybakova. Hi. Um, I will be uh, reading an English translation. I hope my... Uh, my accent doesn't disturb uh, the reading because I know that uh, an accent can be very distracting and so can mine. So please try to imagine me speaking without an accent, if you can. <laughs> um, and the translation is not by me. Uh, the translation is by Elena Dimov, right? Okay, so I'll, ring, I'll, I'll read two songs. Now, um, you have to imagine that this is a novel and that I'm reading prose, although it sounds very much like poetry. But I think if you expect real poetry, you might be a little bit disappointed. It's not quite poetry. It's prose, it just looks like poetry. <laughs> um, 
And uh, in the first song that I will read, it's divided not in chapters, but it's songs because Gnedich was translating the Iliad, and the Iliad, at least in Russian translation, is divided into songs. So I figured same thing will fit with his life. And in the first song that I will read, there is a cleaning lady who comes to Gnedich. Now, there are three main characters. Gnedich, who is the translator, Batyushkov, who is a romantic poet and his best friend, who eventually goes mad, uh, goes crazy. And uh, this uh, cleaning lady, whose name is Elena, which in Russian it's Helen, you know, like the Helen of Troy, but she has nothing to do with anything Greek or Latin. She is a simple woman from around St. Petersburg, and she, she's a cleaning lady. Um, and in my, in my Russian text, she speaks like the Russian, very, very simple Russian people spoke in the 19th century. And uh, my translator, Elena Dimov, and I, we thought maybe she, in, in English, she should speak a little bit like, you know, um, I don't know, Cockney speak in Dickens or, or uh, peasants speak in George Eliot. I don't know if it works, so it's to you, for you to judge. It will sound probably terribly awful in my pronunciation, but okay, I'll just stick with it. Okay. <clears throat> the first two songs, by the way, are available on the site of Brooklyn Rail, the literary magazine Brooklyn Rail. In, uh, it's a site called In Translation. And uh, the sixth and the seventh songs are available on the Russian literature website of the um, uh, University of Virginia. And another song will come out in the literary journal Cardinal Points. Song three. Cranes were crying out and jumping in front of each other. This was the last thing he remembered before falling asleep. But even in his sleep, cranes appeared and with a cry fell from heaven to earth, and he covered his face with his hands to hide his face from their sharp beaks. The piercing cry rang out louder and louder. He awoke and realized that somebody was knocking at the door. The cook said a new maid would come to clean. He said, I'll show her myself what to do. I don't want her to wreak havoc on my papers, but she better clean the dust. The cook said, she will come. Gnezis dresses in a robe and ties a silk scarf around his neck. Maid, cook, friend, high court lady, loneliness, to speak impeccably, clothe himself in armor. Under the cover of French fashion, he fears no one. He opens the door and sees a pale creature of indeterminate age, who lifts her eyes at him, almost white, is she, is she finished, but quickly lowers them. He looks like a devil, and says that she is Elena, and the cook sent her in, that she's sorry for being late, but the rope was wet, and she couldn't untie the boat. A brother always binds them in knots, so you can't untie them. She told him the other day that she was going to see a gentleman. There was no way she could without the boat, they live on an island. That was why she was late. She swears no one in town cleans better. He nods and makes a sign with his fingers. She pauses, enters. He shows her to his study, the desk he writes on, a pile of books, a cabinet and another cabinet with a dusty smell, an ottoman and an armchair and a little table where his pipe lies. And in an adjacent room, the narrow bed of a bachelor, an icon in the corner of the mother of God with the everlasting light in front of her. And the pale creature nods and is no longer afraid because if this devil keeps in his office 
any devices of sorcery, the Virgin Mary will look after her, since her image is not in vain. The feather bed is made with fine and costly linen, she manages to notice, but it isn't shaken up, and the windows are so large but dim, they should be washed, the light barely passes through them. He sure burns many candles, expensive, wax, even in the daytime. These gentry are often up at night, God knows why. One sits and sits alone by himself, casts a spell. Who can understand them? There may be icons in their home, as though everything were normal. But why are the rooms so huge if they are so empty? A chair there, an ottoman here, a desk in the corner. So much space is filled with nothing. He'd better get some trunk or a cupboard with carved doors, and the ceiling is so high, be like a devil is flying beneath it. She imagines it at smiles, but then wipes the smile from her lips so that he couldn't, wouldn't think that she's laughing at him. He says, you'll come at noon, because that is when I leave for my office at the Imperial Public Library. The words are so heavy that she kneels and bows when he speaks them. I don't want even a speck of dust in the room, nor any cobwebs in the corners. She nods, and the books should remain in the same place, and on the same page, and the papers should not be out of order. She nods, and he strives in vain to catch sight of any thought on this pale face. Well, she probably understood. Elena, what a name for a poor maid. But it may be a sign that the gods are pleased with his work of translation. He says goodbye to her, leaves the house, walks along the waterfront, looks at a fisherman. One is playing a flute. Another says to him, stop it, you'll scare away all the fish. The palaces gaze into the water, and it seems to Gnedic that somebody is about to walk out of their front doors, where silent lions sit, turned to marble, and called the fishermen to play the flute to entertain the said boyars. But he knows there are no fairy tales, or, in any case, where he appears, the fairy tales disappear. In the library, a letter from Batushkov is waiting for him. He begins to read it prior to taking up the volumes. And by the way, he's a librarian. That was his day job. From one dusty book to another dusty book, this is his path, and he himself is ash and dust and an empty word. Batushkov writes, What a pity you have never been to Paris. A maze of small streets, you'd love them. Everything is measured for men in this city. The cathedral is great, like a dark forest, and stands on spidery legs. I have been in the palace, even paid a visit to the academy, a pity that I did not see Parny. You know, he's my favorite. Remember, you said once that you had dreamt a city where everything was ugly. Houses, clothes, songs, chariots, the river, commoners, streets. Everything had sharp angles, and everything was like a wasteland, although you could still find people there. You told me about this over a cup of coffee, without fear of ridicule, although only old grandmothers confide to each other their dreams and guess at their meaning. You kept saying, what if such a city exists or will exist? I have to admit that you scared me. 
I thought for a long time about such a possibility and came to the conclusion that maybe for a minute you had a glimpse of hell and that in hell our souls will be tormented by ugliness because the soul is not devoid of eyes but hell is devoid of beauty. As for the realm of men, I swear by our friendship, my friend Gnetko, people will never build houses like the ones you dreamt, looking like boxes, which had their wrapping paper ripped off. The soul requires beauty, it feels beauty. The soul longs for it in the earthly veil. It recalls what it has seen in heaven, as Plato teaches us. Therefore, it compels hands to raise palaces and temples, and even in the poorest hut, compels to paint the window casing in azure. That's why we love beauties, and read Homer, and listen to the violin. However, consider yourself beloved of the gods, for it is they who let you, my friend Gnetka, look straight into hell, probably so that you would translate more green poetry for us. So many vowels point, no doubt, to the divine origin of the Greek language. But I have been distracted. This is what I wanted to tell you. Get a passport for yourself and come here. I'll show you Paris and I'll show you Germany. If you're lucky, we may even see Goethe. You need to travel in the world while still young, for you have buried yourself in papers and never show your head. Carpe diem, as Horace says, life passes, and youth does not return. The letter continued on two more pages. Gnedich put it aside and opened his Homer. But the reading was not going well. He looked out of the window, through the thick glass of the city. Not the morning city, but the dim one under the northern sky. He thought, maybe I ought to see it all. But he knew he would not, and a tear rolled down onto the translation and smeared the ink. Someone saw a dragon, started and stopped, in the wooded canyon in the mountains of Hellas. His knees trembled, and he turned and ran. Paleness spread across his cheek, cheeks. But then he himself had never seen a dragon in the wooded ravines of his childhood. Snakes, sometimes frogs, even lizards, but a dragon, there was no such thing although he often imagined how maybe a dragon was lurking in the ravine and guarding a princess, and he, Gnedich, would go and free her and defeat the dragon. To live and to win, one needs to get rid of pity for the vanquished, of self-pity, but how, how to conquer oneself? How to see oneself as nothingness? How not to regret the fleeting days? How to tell yourself, you are just one of the many, your job is to translate Homer. To be loved is not, is not your business. Being a hero is a job for others, and immortality belongs to the gods. So do not pity a body whose every part advances towards the grave. Don't pity a face lost to disease. Well, he agrees. He does not feel sorry for himself. But how not to grieve for his sister? He was not there when she was dying. He would never forgive himself. Oh, why does life consist only of missed farewells. Anything that might happen to me is too small a punishment for the blackness of my soul, hidden from all, but known to me. When I cannot sleep at night, the darkness of the Lord seems so transparent, 
but the blackness of my soul pours out like spilled ink, flooding the entire bedroom, sticks eyelashes together, and I can see neither the darkness of the Lord nor his light. And Elena, if it's after midnight, and she is not yet asleep, listens to mice rustling in the hall. A lonely bird suddenly cries out in the night, and then all falls silent, fall asleep, asleep, into a deep and dark sleep without dreams, like water in the well, like earth in a moonless night. A little ray of light will wake you at daybreak. It opens the flowers that have closed themselves for the night. It stirs the feathers of the sleeping ruffled birds. Listen, birds, it's time for you to spread your wings. At sunrise, Elena goes out, walking barefoot in the dew, washes up and raises her face to the sun. Her brother has not yet awoken, and her brother's wife sleeps for a long time, but Elena has already untied the boat and is gliding along the river. At noon she enters his house with a basket and rag. Yard keepers and cooks in the city talk about her. No other woman cleans better, never any complaints, clean as in paradise. She dusts the books, wipes the shelves. Her brother knows how to read, and she could learn from the priest in the village. But why should would she? Those book covers are dark, and the scripts are weird. She wipes the inkstand, wipes the pen, the pen the white one-eyed master's fingers had picked up. The master's palms had touched this desk. For the first time in her life, she senses that she wipes not just dust, but his fingers touch. Although the master is not in these rooms, he was there in the morning and would be in the evening. But even now there is something of his presence, an invisible trail, unnoticeable spirit. She goes into the bedroom and crosses herself in front of the icon, begins to shake up the feather bed, straightens the sheets, fixes a pillow, and the imprint of a lone body, preserved from the morning, disappears. Still she has to clean these dusty windows, grabbing her skirt by the hemline, she climbs onto the window sill with a bucket and a rag, rolls up her sleeves one more, and starts to rub the glass in circles and more circles, wipes the sweat from her forehead, looks at the ropes that stretch up to the Neva, at the Admiralty Needle, at the silver water, at the nice soft clouds. Then she starts to rub again and breathes on the glass, and looks at her breath trace and wipes again so that it becomes completely crystal clear, completely clean, in the scholarly master's apartment. Okay, that was song three. Do I still have time? Yes. Okay. Yes, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, I'll read one more song, and it's shorter, I, I promise. So, it's shorter. Okay, song four. And that's about how Batushkov, right, the romantic poet, who will later go mad, has invited Gnedich to travel from um, St. Petersburg, where Gnedich is a librarian, to Batushkov's manor in Hantonova. And Hantonova is a village uh, in the north, right, in the Russian north. But uh, Gnedich himself, he's actually not Russian, he's Ukrainian. And in the novel, sometimes he, you know, remembers how he used, uh, Ukraine at the time was very, very different from St. Petersburg. Yeah. 
Anyway, Badushko said, please come to me to Hantonova, come to me to Hantonova, and then Gnedic decides to take a carriage and go, but there are no railroads, so it's difficult. <clears throat> he left for Hantonova in a postal carriage in the early morning. Batyushkov had long been calling him, come, we'll go pick blueberries, we'll drink wine at the table, covered with a tattered tablecloth. In the evening, we'll burn candles and tell fortunes by Virgil. It does not matter if it's already getting cold, we'll make a fire. After all, in St. Petersburg, you'll never see such red and golden leaves in the autumn, you'll not see the abundance of berries. And I'm bored without you, my friend. Gnedich turned him down for a long time. The journey is too long. He will need to get up early. And you see, he works at night. But in the end, he went. And of course, he was sick during the journey. When will it finally be Vologda? He could not even think to have a bite of bread with chicken that he brought with him in a bundle. And at stops, he preferred to go out breathe the fresh air on an empty stomach, and think about how the earth is endless, and how flowing are her hills, which are becoming fewer, and how empty is the sky, even if it has clouds. After a few miles it began to rain, and continued to drizzle without becoming a downpour, but in seas. Then it dried up. Along the road, a beggar with matted hair, black and gray hair walked, a bag on his shoulders, stick in his hand. As he passed by, Gnedish heard a song, but could not make out the words. I could stop, approach him, listen to him, if the song had any words, and not just whining vowels. Homer might have been like that, but the vagrant was more like a drunkard than a bard. Curiosity would not lead me to anything good. Beware, Gnedish, of sirens. He began to compose a jocular report to Batyushkov on his journey about himself as Odysseus. At the station, while they were changing horses, he walked into a pub and asked for some tea and bread. He took out a piece of paper, licked a pencil. Many were the trials I met on my way. Along the rim of the cup, a fly walked stepping over and over with its thin legs. A flare from the window glimmered on the porcelain, too hot to touch. And life swept over Gnedich like a dreadful wave that he was reading for the first time and for the last, and could only make out one word, now. Pencil in hand, paper with grease spots, because he put it on the dirty table, a crack thin as a hair in the white cup, the polished side of a samovar, a dark icon in the corner, the daylight outside, so dense that you could drink, eat, eat and cut it in pieces. All of this happened to him, to Gnedich, just the once, and he suffocated from these things. It was time to go back to the carriage. He put the paper in his pocket. The coachman whistled. The horses began stepping with their hooves. Gnedich started to joggle, but did not try to escape this torment in his mind. No, he listened to his body and the as the pain throbbed in his temples, while he allowed his heart to pulse in rhythm with its pain. Nausea came up to his throat, yet he loved his body. He loved his disfigured face that nobody else loved. 
He knew that it will be taken away, like the cup, the samovar, the pub already was, and many miles that they passed, these miles were taken away too, every birch, every pine tree that rushed by, decreasing in size, because in the north trees tend to be closer to the ground, under the sky's heaviness. Birds flew lower and lower. Gnedich sat, hugging his knees, jumping over the potholes. Oh, my little life, Zoe, Bios, how I regret that I did not love you in time. Yesterday, for example, I did not love you as I was falling asleep. I dreamt of Simeonova instead of feeling the heaviness in my legs or watching my eyelids go down. He took a sheet of paper out of his pocket and turned it over. I am Odysseus, waves rock my raft, but I landed at a welcoming island by the name of Tavern. There I was given a foreign potion, a weak tea. The pimpled servant did not look like a nymph. No gardens bloomed around me, nor did birds sing. There was indeed a fly. Maybe it was Athena in the image of an insect. I did not know that and brushed her away from my cup. It's getting late. I'll have to stay overnight somewhere, and I only hope that at the inn the hostess will not turn me into a beast. But if she does, may she turn me back human by the morning light. The inn was so sad as though no one ever came here, but all were merely leaving. And even when the lost ones left, nobody recalled them. Cobwebs covered the corners, and a layer of dark dust was over everything you might touch. Men unharnessed the horses. The samovar happened to be cold. The hostess looked really like a witch. Or that there would be no bedbugs in the room. Laris clicked the floorboards. Penates frolicked in the attic like bats. He was falling asleep, and yet could not sleep. Something was knocking at the window. Someone's heart, a homeless spirit, a forgotten dream, my youth. By thirty years of age, we forget so many. We'll be forgiven just because we too will be forgotten soon. Batushkov, from the hard bed, from an inn, from the pitch black of night, please accept my assurances of a heartfelt friendship. I've never heard that the gods have friends. Therefore, Batushkov, we're above the gods. And then in the night, a bird cried heartbrokenly to remind him of the sin of pride. Sleep overcame Gnedich, soft like a blanket, the brother of death, still only a brother. The nocturnal life of the forest that he was unaware of played out under the sky. Snowy owls caught mice, an eagle owl crowed. The sleepless paws of beasts of prey stepped with a soft gait. Before dawn, all was quiet. The darkness paled, and before the sphere of the sun rolled out, the air vibrated. Gnedich woke up happy, as in his childhood, because he would soon meet his friend. He dressed with an adult diligence, looked at the dusty mirror. A crack divided his face in half. Refreshed, he went down the stairs, got into his carriage. The well-rested horses were swift. The leaves turned slightly yellow over the night, and trees on both sides of the road sought to embrace him. 
He wondered how many tricks the world has to keep us from going any further. A forest canopy, a singing bird, a flower. Take, for example, Narcissus. Maybe it was not his reflection, but a ripple in the water that forced him to gaze again and again. The world caught him in its beauty, like in a trap, and assault him without a trace. Sickness again rose to his throat, a headache from the bumps and turns. Then the holes were over, and the puddles began, so enormous that they reflected the whole forest and half the sky. Wheels got stuck in the mud. They had to pull them out. Our land is somehow quite inconvenient, and the body, generally speaking, has the same impassibility, where our thoughts and feelings get bogged down, and all this comes to an end in a puddle, a lump of dirt, a handful of ashes. But the road straightened out, and the wheels ran fast. Trees on both sides of the road flashed so quickly. A cloud of smoke appeared in the distance. And look, there is a manor on the horizon, and you can already see the windows. A triangular frontal, four columns. Now the staircase steps, and on the steps a small figure that runs back and forth and waves to him. The journey is over. I arrived. My friend, my friend, rejoice. Thank you. There's an obvious and continually festering rift in fiction between the high and the low, between literary fiction and genre fiction, between the kinds of writing we're allowed to say we like and the kinds we're only allowed to say we like if we also say we know we shouldn't. Any further bipartisanship has to be done with care, as if finding value in both sides might get us thrown out of the fancy fiction parties that only allow the right kinds of fiction if you know what I mean. But this rift between one camp who appreciates narrative experimentation and problematized characters, rhetorical and political awareness, and a second camp who wants themselves told a good old-fashioned yarn with intrigue and blood and a well-plotted punch to the guts at the end, these two camps looking at each other with disdain from across either side of the gym at the prom can, if the right writer intervenes, be made to intermingle and influence each other and comment on each other, discovering something richer in the sum of their disparate parts by being unafraid to blur the tenuous lines between literary and genre, between high and low. Adrian Van Young is such a writer. Author John Ray has called him the secret love child of many authors I admire, from Ambrose Pierce to H.P. Lovecraft to Sherwood Anderson to DePius Wolfe. In each of Van Young's stories, he quickly and precisely, with attention to details both tonal and aesthetic, establishes a world we should be comfortable with, that of the American Gothic, or the coming-of-age tale, or the historical melodrama, and then immediately hands us characters and voices and ideas to complicate that comfort. His vessels, the tough-as-nails rancher, the lonely urbanite, the curious adolescent, do not maintain the status quo of their categories because their worlds, like them, are real and constantly shifting, affected by issues of history, race, 
sexuality, and gender just as easily as they are by supernatural forces, crimes of passion, and unknowable doom. These characters change throughout the stories they inhabit in ways that are nuanced and human, confounding the question of whether they're protagonists or antagonists, and whether that's even relevant, if it's more important that these stories, within the impeccably crafted worlds built around them, are true. A West Coaster turned East Coaster, Adrian Van Young grew up here in San Diego, but now hails from Massachusetts. He received his BA in English from Vassar College and his MFA in fiction from Columbia, where he also taught. He has taught writing and literature at the Calhoun School, 826 NYC, and the Buckingham Brown and Nichols School. In 2008, he was the recipient of a Henfield Foundation Prize and was nominated by Columbia's faculty for inclusion in the Best New American Voices 2010 anthology. The Man Who Noticed Everything, his first book of fiction, won the 2011 St. Lawrence Book Award and is forthcoming from Black Lawrence Press in March of this year. He currently teaches writing at Boston College, Boston University, and Grub Street Writers, Inc., and is in the midst of writing a historical novel based on the life of William H. Mumler, the father of spirit photography, and his clairvoyant wife, Hannah Mumler. Please help me give a warm hometown welcome to Adrian Van Young. Hi. Um, thank you very much, Keith, for that generous and um, intuitive introduction. Um, thank you for hosting me, UCSD MFA program. And thank you, Maria. That was a, ver- that was a beautiful reading, and I very much enjoyed it. Um, I'm honored to be here. And um, I don't think there's anything left to say about the collection that you didn't cover yourself. So I'll just uh, jump right into it. I'm going to read for about... 15 minutes from from the last uh, story in the collection. Um, And this story is called The Subleaser. And so I return from a series of errands to find my apartment unalterably changed. Which change, I should say, was in fact several changes that had in collusion affected the one by dint of a sly and concerted campaign against the state of my rooms preceding my absence. Rooms and not room to be clear on one thing, namely that I, their primary tenant, was only fiscally and moreover physically liable for the sustained occupation of one, my room, while the other, which lay around a bend and down a splintered wooden hallway from my own, the north room, I had leased for undetermined months to a certain third party little known to me then. But more of him, the subleaser, the stranger, to come. It is the matter of the change that I wish to embark on. My apartment is a standard one for the part of the city where I live. It begins at the door, which opens, like so, to show the splintered wooden hallway that I mentioned before. On the right is a bathroom, ill-sequenced of tile, with a sink built onto the wall and a bathtub where a thin and mildewed curtain hangs, clad in a pattern of green and white plaid. To the left of the curtain, an insolent toilet, coated with a film of brown. Above the toilet is a window of thick, smeary glass that peers out on a bend in a courtyard of stone, which does not correspond, I have need to observe, to the crook of the L that makes up the apartment. 
Continuing down the splintered hall, tandem to the bathroom on the right, is a kitchen with a wide metal sink and a stovetop and oven and copious shelf space above where sit foodstuffs. Facing the shelving, a circular table, unmatted and scarred with extendable leaves, though these leaves, I should mention, have not been extended by some inhospitable months by my calendar. Roughly tandem to the kitchen is the room in which I take my rest. My room, the north room, least only to me, is a large and ascetic, say, scholarly space, bisected along the western wall by a naked-legged pipe grown outrageously hot in what are now, as I write this, the dog days of winter. Next to the pipe sits a modest bookshelf where I have invested a paperback library, this philosophical text by dead men with spry minds in whom I have vested a tentative trust. Northeast of the shelf, in the room's farthest corner, hunkers the whiteness of the bed, and next to the bed, a lacquered side table, where a number of disparate items reside, including, but not always limited to, the book I happen to be reading, a flexible, prehensile lamp, a humidifier that severs the air with its shrill, unbending jet of steam, a glass of night water with things floating in it whose molecular makeup I would rather not know, things native to here, to the pipes underneath, to the far reservoirs, kept by concrete that do their best to keep me healthy. There is nothing on the walls of the room where I sleep. The white of the paint there has proven acceptable. Beyond the living room in the back of the apartment lies the south room, the strange room, the room not in wine, and of which I prefer on the whole not to speak. For it marks what is clearly, in my mind at least, the origin of the greater change that I found had come over the whole of the rooms upon coming back from the series of errands, as if, like some malignancy, the change had begun in that room and spread outward. It had been occupied, the room I mean, by the subleaser, little known to me, who had come to inquire about said room after happening he claimed on an advertisement for it. That was the word he had used, the word happen. I happened on the ad, he'd said, while reading the paper this morning at breakfast, as if to say in truth that he'd done nothing of the sort, but had had the room in mind to sublease for some time, and this feigned indifference the ultimate ploy to ensure it would be his and quick. When I returned from my day running errands, he had gone, without a word in advance or a courtesy call, and the apartment without him was utterly changed, not because he had left, but because he had been there. However, he did leave a note, the subleaser, less a source of information than it was a kind of cipher, tamped beneath the gray salt shaker at the center of the table with extendable leaves. It was a word process note, as opposed to handwritten, which struck me as odd for a couple of reasons. One, as a note, it did not merit printing, which was what had produced it, a printer, I mean, and not a typewriter, as might stand to reason, the letter machine on the whole more conducive to jotting a note on on the fly for quick viewing, and the former altogether best for composing a statement or even a missive, while the note, as you will find, was neither. Two, the subleaser, for whatever reason, had quit the south room with remarkable haste in the five-hour period I was gone, which was really four hours by the subleaser's clock, for he would have been wise to account for at least a buffering margin of one or more hours between when he had fixed for himself to be gone and roughly the time he expected me home, which was barely enough for the moving essentials, let alone to sit down at a laptop computer, format a note, and then print the note out. Three, it consisted of the following words, which were odd, irrespective of their method of production. 
Hey, enclosed bills, $60, are for Tatiana, arriving 2209. Thanks for the shelter, however brief, and good luck. Sincerely, Hank. P.S. Tatiana's number. I don't know why my publisher allowed me to include a real number, but <laughs> this is a number with a 212 area code. 212-676-2398. Hank's enclosed bills were indeed in the note, congruent the seam of the folded-up paper. They were not meant to count towards the rent I knew, which he had always paid by check, and which he had paid me in full the day prior by way of said check slipped under my door, Perhaps I reflected to avoid circumstances that would have been colored on his part at least by the awkward foreknowledge of his imminent departure, which he planned to effect the next day, i.e. this one. But then again, I reconciled, he had long been in the habit of paying me thus by slipping the check beneath my door, and therefore had always been planning to leave as soon as the moment presented itself. So the money was not then intended for me, but indeed the elusive Tatiana, set to arrive 2209, which now I considered it was tomorrow, and whose contact information, which appeared to be local, appended the word process note. But who was she, this Tatiana? And what had the subleaser hired her to do? And why, furthermore, was her number a postscript as opposed to placed beside her name? When I added the numbers successively, I arrived at the sum of 46. What did it signify, that number? Or was it merely happenstantial? And what, furthermore, had the subleaser meant when he thanked me, rather glibly, I thought, for the shelter? Did shelter refer to the shared space itself, in an easy and jocular way, perhaps? Or did it have a more urgent, even literal dimension, as in shelter from harm, i.e. persecution, which put me in mind of nefarious doings that Hank might well have taken part in, ones that had driven him here to these rooms to seek respite in anonymity? For what did I know about him really, this trespasser into and out of my life? His name was Hank. His trade was law. His hair was close-shaved. His complexion was reddened. The checks that he wrote me never bounced. He lived alone inside the room. He was early to bed and early to rise, and he hardly ever cooked. In between prior tenants, I had not leased the room, though I could have with relative ease, I am sure, as the demand among students for similar rooms is great throughout the city where I live, which is expensive. But as I began to compose my thesis, I had less and less time to eke out pocket money, and my small fellowship had been cut to a third so as to provide for the less senior students who were just then beginning their coursework that fall. All of which resulted in my fifth year of study in my agreeing to host for once a subleaser who had happened across my ad, he claimed, while reading the paper one morning at breakfast. I happened on the ad, he'd said, and it made good sense to inquire, so I did. Yet this, I should mention that last, wasn't possible, for I had posted no such notice in the paper or elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks. Adrian has on this pedestal over here copies of this book that is forthcoming. Yet it has come. Yes. Uh, uh, so, so the copies are available. Uh, also, I was wondering, Maria, Adrian, if you would be willing to answer a couple questions together.